0: It's been a few weeks since we returned to our series on the Gospel of John, and uh, we actually do return to that series, finally, uh, this morning. I've had several church members ask me, when are we getting back to the Gospel of John? The answer is today. Today is the day that we return to the Gospel of John. Uh, I want to remind you what was happening when we last looked at the Gospel of John on March cha- March 15th. Uh, on March 15th, we were in John 6, where Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. And as we concluded, he sent the disciples across the sea to save them from the temptation, to join with the crowd and make Jesus a king. And then we saw, as he walked to the disciples across the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, walking across the waves, initially causing them incredible terror, but then, of course, stealing away their fear and assuring them of his love and care. And so this morning, the text follows immediately on the heels as the crowd begins to notice that Jesus is no longer with them. Where has he gone? And so they begin a search, and we begin reading that in verse chapter twenty, verse 22 of chapter 6 of the book of John. Hear now the word of God. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. This morning, as we look at your word, Lord, make us aware that we are needy beggars, and you are rich in mercy. Would you show us our need? Would you show us your riches? Would you feed us from your table, O God, showing us the truth of who you are and the good news of your Son that is your free gift today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love living in a capitalistic nation. Uh, um, Spoiler alert, I I love democracy. I love our system of government. I count it an incredible privilege that I was born in and have grown up in an environment with so many economic opportunities and personal freedoms afforded by the sort of system of government that we enjoy in the United States. Part of the reason I say that is because I'm about to say something critical about living in that kind of culture. I don't want to be misunderstood. Because in addition to all of those good things that come from living in a system of incredible economic freedom, we also have this incredibly, extraordinarily one-sided effect that comes from living in that kind of a world, and that is this, a consistent, endless consumer mentality. And there's a certain consumeristic mentality that comes from living in a nation where almost everything people do is driven in some sense by a cost-benefit analysis. Because people become accustomed to being presented with opportunities, and what do they do? Well, they ask the question first, what is in it for me? Surely there's something here that's going to be to my benefit and they ask this question before they'll commit to something. Even churches have come to sort of accept this mentality in some ways. Churches often as they think of themselves and they as they conceive of what they are, they see themselves as competing with the rest of the world. They see themselves as competing with movies, competing with sports, competing with family outings and other opportunities that people could be spending their time on. And we should confess, many people do shop around at churches. They try out different churches, the way you might visit different gyms to decide which gym you're going to join. Uh, They look at churches and they say, well, look, this one has a youth group. Uh, This one has a great children's program. This one has an organist. Oh, this one has a band, right? This one has... Uh, one kind of music. This one has a band that sounds just like Hillsong. I hear them on the radio. And people can start to think of church membership or church attendance in this worldly way, where they start to come to church not just for the features that come along with the church, but rather than to get the simplicity of knowing Christ, they come for worldly reasons worldly benefits that they want. They don't go to church, at least certainly not always, with the question in mind, is the scripture being read? Is it being explained so that I can benefit from it? Am I going to find Christ in this place? In fact, the moment we're, we're living, it almost amplifies this right now, and I'm talking about the fact that we are watching our sermons from home, and at the push of a button, we can go somewhere else. You know, every morning, we Sunday morning, we make these sermons available, uh, and, and anyone else can listen in as well, but as a, as a pastor, I know very well that someone may begin watching this message, and then they may say, you know, I think I'd rather listen to the guy from the big pulpit across town. I think I'd like to see what it's like to see these other churches, and I, I would say, there's nothing wrong with the fact that you can see these things. There's nothing wrong with watching multiple services in one day. In fact, it's a great way to eat and get the Lord uh, to to bring his scripture to you, right? And it's as easy as clicking a mouse a few, few more times. But I think it is very easy for us to look at our spiritual life or our church life with that sort of consumer mentality that says, what am I going to get? I'll I'll join, but what do I get out of it? Is there a cultural benefit? Is there a, 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 a personal benefit? Is there some financial gain that I can get from joining and being part of this church? And the problem here is that Jesus is dealing with this same issue on one level, right? Because here are these people, and they want to follow Jesus, but they have a consumer mentality. And they want to follow Jesus, but they want to follow Jesus for the very wrong reasons which we are about to see. And so Jesus has to deal with the problems of this whole interaction by focusing on the wrong motives, that's point one. Then dealing with right eating, that's point two. And then ultimately bringing it back to the issue of true life and what it means to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Why we do what we do matters to God. Jesus cares about not just what you do, but he cares about the motivations. Why do you do what you do? That's what he focuses on with this crowd that comes to him this morning. So first, Jesus confronts wrong motives in Verse 22, the people realize something weird has happened, right? The disciples left, Jesus didn't leave with them, and yet Jesus is not around. So they've thought about this. They've thought about how he got here. And they seem to realize that Jesus has crossed the sea and that he did not have a boat to help him. Or at least they think there's some mystery here that they'd like to solve. So they have no boats either. They don't have vehicles to take. And so they send for some boats from Tiberias. They get into the boats and they go to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on this. I just want you to notice that they are on a bit of a hunt, right? They are very, very eager to find Jesus. I think most of the time, I think in situations, we would find this praiseworthy, right? And you could just imagine... Isolating this passage here, and you can imagine me doing a sermon where I say something like, Why aren't you looking for Jesus? Why aren't you this eager to be in the presence of Jesus? Now, Without context, what they do here seems praiseworthy, doesn't it? But here's the problem. The problem is that's not going to happen here, because they are looking for Jesus. But the question is, Why? Why? looking for Jesus and in verse 25 they catch up to him and they start to quiz him how did you get here and Jesus responds in verse 26 with an accusation he doesn't answer their question and then he accuses them at least he accuses some of them what he says is this truly truly I say to you you are seeking me not because you saw signs But because you ate your fill of the loaves. As one commentator puts it, instead of seeing the bread in the bread, the sign, they saw the sign, but they only saw the bread. Let me say that one more time and say it better. (laughs) Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. They had seen in the sign only the bread. They saw the bread as bread, but they didn't see what it meant. All they know is their stomachs are full, and boy, is that wonderful. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is being very stern in his response here. He he is accusing them of looking to him for something other than him. He says, oh, you came looking for me, all right, but you didn't come looking for me. You came looking for a full stomach. It isn't that it's wrong to look for Jesus. It's that they were looking to him, and they were looking for him, for the wrong reasons. These people are more interested in their bodily health than in their spiritual health, right? They think that their empty stomachs are more important than their empty souls, And Jesus has been trying and trying and teaching and trying to get them to see that your your empty, hungry soul is more important than your body. One of the things that has been pointed out to me by close friends is their frustration during this season of where we are prohibited from meeting as churches. One of the big frustrations is, it seems, and I think this is true the government certainly values the body over the soul right it's their priority to make sure that we survive but they have no focus on our spiritual health we have to be honest we as a church are complying with the government's recommendation that groups no larger than 10 uh, don't that the groups larger than 10 don't meet we are in compliance with that, we are glad to sort of be examples to our community, and yet at the same time, we have to also confess that there is a prioritizing of the body here, isn't there? There's a prioritizing of the body. Our souls, I think, judging from my conversations with people in this church, our souls during this season are not fed the way they should be simply by a video sermon. And so it's very possible that right now our souls are withering, withering during this season. This season of loneliness, this season of solitude, and then also on top of that, not knowing how long it's going to last. Well, these people are more interested in the body as well. They're more interested in the body and what's going to happen to our bodies than our souls. The crazy part is these were some of the same people that he had compassion on the day before. Jesus had compassion on them the day before. Now, why do I bring this up? Because there's a reminder here. It's not like Jesus has it in for these people. It's not like Jesus is angry with these people, right? Spiritual warnings are an expression of compassion. Jesus had compassion on these people the day before. Now he brings them a spiritual warning. Do you see what's going on here? If you've ever had someone come to you in genuine love and they corrected you, they said, You've lost sight of the Lord, or or, you've fallen into sin and you need to be corrected. I think your first reaction when that happens is to get angry and self-defensive and say, why don't you love me? And Jesus is showing us here, you can love somebody and correct them. In fact, those go together. Those go together. Spiritual warnings. Spiritual warnings are such a blessing. If we would just be willing to hear them. These people he's speaking to get the warning because they're in spiritual danger. Why? Why are they in spiritual danger? Well, let's put it bluntly. The blunt answer why they're in danger is they're materialistic. They are in it for what Jesus can give them. Let's apply that to churches. We see churches buy into this extreme end of the spectrum, right? On the extreme end of the spectrum, you have churches... Uh, that buy into what is called the so-called prosperity gospel. And these churches think that God is interested in making them rich and keeping them healthy. You have people even right now standing up and rebuking sickness and saying that COVID-19 is going to go away. This was weeks and weeks ago, and it hasn't gone away, by the way. Rebuking it and speaking to it and commanding a cure to be found. This focus on materialism and health. And there are people, there are people who are Christians and they, out of ignorance, simply do not know the truth. They don't understand. And what has happened is the church has bought into this deeply ugly type of materialism that is parading itself as spirituality. There are other ways the church is also buy into the materialism and they don't do it in such an extreme way but there are churches that reach out and they try to use a materialistic mentality to get people to come to church. A few years ago there was a church in Texas that had a raffle for a free house. To enter the raffle all you had to do was show up at church that day and if you show up at church you get entered into the raffle. You won't find real worshipers of God that way, but you will find worshipers of houses that way. So if if your demographic is you're looking for house worshipers, this is a fantastic way to draw house worshipers into a church. Isn't this the sort of thing that, that Jesus is talking about? Coming to him to see what we can get. What can I get? Jesus, what are you going to give me? I'll come to you. But I've done the cost-benefit analysis, and I need to know what's in it for me if I come to you. And yet what Jesus is saying is, it isn't just for the extreme and wacky behavior. When Jesus says, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves, he's condemning this subtle way that we're motivated to do spiritual things For non-spiritual reasons, right? He is getting at our motivations. There are very few things that are harder to detect, but also more dangerous than this. Doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. The only people who know why you're doing the things you do each day is you and God. Think about that. That's why doing the right thing for the wrong reason is so easy to do because no one knows why you did it except you and God. And sometimes only God really knows the reason why you do what you do. Think about the best things that you do each day, even spiritual activities. Think about the dangerous dangers that can even come along with the simplest spiritual activities if we do them for the wrong motivations and the wrong reasons. Think about this. Morning devotions. There is not a verse in the Bible that says, Thou must do thy morning devotions each and every day. There's not a verse that says that. I know that's something that Christians sometimes put on other Christians, but let's just say you do your morning devotions, and you read your Bible each morning, you get your cup of coffee, you sit down, maybe you get a devotional book, and you begin to read, and hopefully you pray. Why do you do that? What's your reason? People can have any number of motivations. All right? You might do it because you need it and you know you need it. You say, this is something that's good for me. It's something that gives me joy. It's something that draws me near to the heart of God. I love this. So That's, that's one motivation. You might do it because you've made it a habit. Your day doesn't feel right without it. That's not a terrible motivation, by the way. But you might do it So you can snap a photo and put it up on Instagram, right? Look at how spiritual I am. Also, look how much I like coffee. Uh, You might do it so your spouse can see you. Maybe you want your spouse to think well of you. Wow, I'm glad I married such a spiritual person. You might do it so that your kids can see you, so that you can be a good example for them. Yeah, I got up this morning and I looked and I saw Dad reading his Bible. That's why dad reads his Bible, so that his children will see him reading his Bible. Why do you do your morning devotions? You see, spiritual things, spiritual activities do come with dangers of their own, don't they? And most of the danger is tied into our motivations. What is driving this? Why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you you get some tangible benefit? Are you doing this because people will think better of you? Are you doing this because it will create career advancement? What are your motivations for the things you do in your life? If we're honest, sometimes our life is dominated by a combination of these motivations. We're very complicated people. We have lots of reasons why we do what we do. 500 years ago, John Calvin addressed the problem. He could have been saying this in the year 2020. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, People who do not long for the kingdom of God but are satisfied with the pleasures of this present life, seek nothing beyond their bodily appetite. This is how many people today would like to embrace the gospel as long as it is free from the bitterness of the cross and only brings human pleasure with it. Indeed, we see many people make a profession of being Christians hoping to live a happier and freer life. Some people claim to be Christ's disciples because they hope to derive benefit from this others do so out of a sense of fear and others for the sake of those they want to please I can tell you what Jesus wants Jesus wants each person to follow him for his own sake because Jesus is worth following now what do you do if you find yourself in a little bit of a loop Where you do a spiritual activity, and you know you're doing it for the wrong reason. I want you to notice Jesus' solution, and his solution isn't to stop doing the good thing. He doesn't say, stop following me. Stop looking for me. Stop spending time with me. Jesus doesn't drive the people away. His solution is, you've got to wake up. You've got to see your wrong motivations For what they are, repent before the Lord, seek the face of God, ask Him to make your heart right. Now, if all you take away from that is, man, morning devotions are bad, I better stop reading my Bible in the morning, then you need to listen again. Because Jesus doesn't send the people away just because their motivations are bad. Following Jesus was the right thing for them to do. The problem was in their heart. It was their motivation. It's what drove them. And so Jesus answers the dilemma of doing the wrong thing or the right thing for the wrong reason by reminding them that the best things, the best reasons to do what they were doing. Maybe you need that reminder today. Here you are, probably sitting in your house, hopefully sitting with some family, hopefully not alone, and you're watching this, this message, you pulled it up on YouTube, you pulled it up on the church website, maybe you saw it on, on Facebook, one way or another, there's lots of ways we're distributing this out there. Why are you tuning, tuning in this morning? Are you doing it because of habit? Are you doing it because a spouse or a family member asked you to? You know, it's not too late to admit before the Lord that, that your motivations aren't always what they should be. And Maybe you're a kid. Your parents put it on. You don't want to do this. You want to watch Disney Plus or something like that instead. You're doing the right thing. You're hearing the Word of God. Maybe you're not doing it for the right reasons. all you have to do is confess that you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, and you will find grace before your God. This is the first problem, then, that Jesus takes on this issue of wrong motives. Our motives matter to Jesus. The second this morning, Jesus gets positive by focusing on right eating. Uh, Jesus has just caught them red-handed, Mostly they did just follow him because he filled their bellies, so let's admit it. However, he comes back to them with something positive, and he gives them a two part encouragement in verse 21. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is classic, eat this, not that advice. Right? You've heard of eat this, not that. I started following this this health and exercise guy on on YouTube. One of the big motivators for me to eat well has been just watching this guy talk about the right things uh, to eat, the right kinds of food to eat, and the stuff that you just have to run from it like it's radioactive. I had pizza this weekend. I, it, was, it was it was it may as well have been radioactive. But I mean, having having someone show you what's good to eat and explain why is incredibly helpful to me. Um, Jesus is doing something like that here. What should you eat? And what should you avoid? And Jesus gives a two-part answer, right? Uh, What shouldn't you eat? Well, what shouldn't you work for? He says, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't eat this. Don't eat the food that perishes. Now, he's taking us back to this issue of materialism again. He's literally saying... He's literally saying, you shouldn't live for the sort of bread that you can only eat with your mouth. In the Old Testament, God's people were always tempted to live for idols. Just constantly, like magnets, just drawn towards Idols and, and God is always making fun of the idols that they worship. He, he makes fun of how they set them up for themselves, how they prop up the idols, how, how they're made of wood, and, the, and they eventually disintegrate, right? And just on every level, the people care so much about these dumb, man-made things. If you think that having a wooden idol is hilarious, imagine having a bread idol. It's even shakier, and and it lasts way less time. Have you ever go to the store and you say, you know what, I always get those $1 hamburger buns, the Walmart brand hamburger buns. I'm gonna get fancy this week. This happened to me a few weeks ago. Uh, I go to the grocery store, barely any food on the shelves, no bread anywhere, and so what do you do? What do you do when there's no food on the shelves? Well, you say, well, I guess I'm buying the $5 hamburger buns. So you go over to the bread section. You get the five-dollar hamburger buns. Man, those things look good. They look fancy. I would pay nine dollars for this at Applebee's, is what I say to myself. And so you pick up your expensive loaf of, of uh, your expensive package of hamburger buns, and you go home. The next day, you go to the grill and you cook your burgers. You take them off. You go to the kitchen. You open the package, and immediately, what do you have? There's mold on the big, fancy $5 hamburger buns. Why did this happen? You can see I'm passionate about this. I hope somebody from Walmart or Kroger Corporate is listening right now. Probably not. The point is, man, bread doesn't last very long. (laughs) Could you imagine making that your idol? Making that the thing that you live for? Imagine living for that. It's absurd. But we really are absurd people, aren't we? Everything that we love that isn't God is just as silly. And compared to God, the material things that we care about are all ridiculous and silly, right? Compared to God, your house is silly. Compared to God, your toys and gadgets and vehicles are silly. Compared to God, your most valuable possession is completely laughable, right? Jesus says, don't work for that kind of bread. And he wants you to know it's all bread. It's all bread. Jesus says, don't eat that. Don't live for bread that perishes. Instead, he says, work for food that endures to eternal life. This is the second advice he gives on food or directive i guess when jesus speaks it's not advice it's directions <laughs> he says work for food that endures to eternal life so right, the simplest meaning of this is clear spiritual things last spiritual realities aren't fleeting our priority in life should be on those things that matter most and last longest How does Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The temptation to materialism is the temptation to momentary happiness. Jesus says, don't live for that. See, Jesus calls us to eternal, restful blessedness. Do you see the difference between those two, right? Happiness is for the moment. Blessedness is lasting. Those things are an infinite distance apart. Blessedness and happiness. Which one are you living for? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, those alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. Put happiness in the place of righteousness and you will never get it. Put happiness in the place of righteousness and you'll never get happiness. Jesus says, work for food that endures to eternal life. See, Jesus is getting at our motivations. He's getting at our priorities. He's getting underneath of what drives us to do what we do. He's talking to these crowds, but is there any doubt that he's also talking to us, right? People living in the comfortable West, surrounded by things. We may be in the midst of a collapsing empire. Have we come to terms with the fact that all this bread around us may be in the process of disintegrating? Jesus would have us look around at our things, at our most valuable possessions, everything we have, and he would say, don't live for this stuff it won't fill your heart it won't satisfy you it will leave you empty it will leave you joyless and worst of all you can lose it if you've seen your 401k lately right now at this moment you may feel that that is a very very real statement Work, Jesus says, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Eat this, not that. Third, Jesus leads us where he really wants us, by telling us about true life. What do we do about this? You know, we, we see that he weighs the motivation, that he shows them what they really need. You know, surely there's a call to action here. Well, there is. Jesus says, work for the food that endures. Now, this would be a very easy passage to misunderstand. It would be very easy to misunderstand this and say, okay, I'm supposed to get God to love me. I'm supposed to work. That's the word he says, work for the food that endures. That's what I need to do. What do I need to work for? If God is going to love me, what sort of thing should I perform? But Jesus doesn't mean earn eternal life by your good works. How do I know? Am I just reading that into the text? It's because they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they have this presumption that there is work to be done. So they say, tell us what we're supposed to do. Give us more commands. Give us more rules. How many Hail Mary's should I pray? Tell me what my penance is? We want to do. That's our instinct. We want to work. Just tell us what it is and we'll do it. We're no one's debtor. Jesus, we can make this even. What does it? What's it going to take? And in verse 29, Jesus says very clearly what he meant by work. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what he requires. See, it turns out, this work isn't work at all. Believe in Jesus, that's literally his answer. He says, says, they said, what are the works we must do? And Jesus says, just believe in me. Just believe in me literally his answer. What is God calling you to? He's calling you to faith. It doesn't work at all. Paul in Romans 6.23 says it better than I ever could. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, you cannot earn eternal life you can come to the one who has already earned it for you and that's the invitation so when Jesus says work for the food that endures to eternal life Jesus means make your life all about following me make your battle each day the battle to believe my good news your life is built upon faith in Jesus Cannot earn it. in fact in fact you have to stop trying to earn it. you must rest in Christ because he has earned it for you. The gospel says that he was good because you never will be good. That's what the gospel is. that's what the good news means. it means that he's been good on your behalf. you, you see this in the book of Acts right? In the book of Acts, the Philippian jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Right? He wants to know what to do. He wants to work. Why does he want to work? Because that is the human impulse, right? I don't get something for free. How do I need to act How do I need to live? What do I need to do to get this incredible thing? And the disciples' response to that question wasn't a work at all. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But notice in all this that every step Jesus leads us through is devoted to spiritual life, to spiritual joy, to heavenly things, to things that last, things that we can't lose. It's easy for churches to lose, their, lose this focus. It's as easy as asking the question, what can we do to get unsafe people to start coming to our church? And as soon as churches begin to tailor themselves toward answering that question, they lose all that makes them unique in this materialistic age. Because inevitably the answer is, we get unsafe people to come to our church by offering them the things that they like. And I mentioned when we started that the churches often can begin to believe that they are in competition with the world. And they can begin to behave as though they're in competition with the world. And yet really churches need to recapture that sense that they do stand apart from the world. And they're different from the world. And they're different. They don't live on the trappings of the world. Churches need to understand that if they actually do try to compete with entertainment, concerts, movies, plays, uh, play areas for the kids, etc., we will always lose because the world is incredibly skilled at those things. Those things are all that they have, and so they excel at them. But the one thing that Christians have a corner on. It's the most important market, and it's an an area that the world cannot compete in, and that is this eternal life. At one point, Jesus asked the disciples if they were going to leave him, and their response was, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The church needs to seize hold of this self. We do not compete with the world because we alone have the words of eternal life. We have what the world can never give, we have what the world can never possess. All that the world has are cheap substitutes and cheap distractions. This is why we as a church need to major in what we have been given most of all, the things people truly need can't be provided by the world. They will only get them in Christ. In a world in need of healing, we're the ones with the answer. It's said of Grimaldi the Clown that he felt his work so keenly that as soon as his performance was over, he he retired to a corner and wept profusely. It was a man of, of tender heart and generous impulses. And there's a story about him which has been handed down by many generations of clowns. And it goes on to say that Grimaldi the Clown became very ill and very despondent. And so he went and consulted a great London specialist. As the man spoke with Grimaldi, he looked him over and he remarked, Go to see Grimaldi the Clown. Laugh yourself well clown looked at the specialist and very sadly replied, I am Grimaldi. Here's the point of the story and why I bring this here at the end. We are the church and we have what the world needs. Even if the the church becomes obsessed with amusement and entertainment and distraction, and people will come to us, and they will come to us expecting us to have true, deep, eternal things to share with them. Things that they need more than just a loaf of bread. But when they see that we are just as materialistic as they are, they really will lose any reason for hope. Because the church is the one place where the hope is supposed to be. We as the church of all people have to stop living for the food that perishes. If we expect the world to stop living for the food that perishes, then we need to be weaned off of those things as well. And maybe that's what God is doing to us right now. What does that mean? That means having a sense of identity that is not formed by our circumstances not formed by our temporary successes and joys and happiness, but having a sense of our identity that is formed by Christ alone and established in all that Jesus is for us. Let's pray. Our Father, you love us too much to simply feed our appetites, you love us too much to indulge us in such obsessions that we have with what we can see and touch and, and have. Instead, you call us to love you and indeed to not live for this world that's fading away. That is easier said than done, oh God. But we know that all things are possible with you, and this is why we pray. We pray for that which we can't do ourselves or in our own hearts. Would you make us a people that love you and your kingdom and your food above all else? Would you devote us to Christ and protect us from loving this fading stuff around us? In Jesus' name we pray.